Welcome to the Health and Wealth Podcast, where true wealth is your health. I just got done interviewing Rick Zulu, um, blogger at Eat Like an Italian, former dentist, entrepreneur, online marketer, and all around just a great dude. We get into a lot of topics. We talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet, and we also talk about the Mediterranean lifestyle. So if you like nutrition, if you like life advice, or just anything all around self-improvement, you're going to love this episode. Again, this is with Rick Zulu. Rick, if you're listening to the intro, thank you again for such a great interview, and uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Enjoy the episode. I'll tell you something funny, because you made a comment on your podcast that not everybody is allergic to gluten. Both my grandparents are Italian. They're in their mid-90s, no medications, and they eat pasta yeah. every day. <laughs> so yeah, what attracted you to the Mediterranean lifestyle? Yeah, I, and I think that's it. It's like it sort of takes a holistic approach. You know, I, I think there's a lot of danger in this sort of, you know, reductive uh, thinking where we're trying to find, you know, the one molecule or the one ingredient, the one vitamin that's going to change our diet. Uh, and you know, I, th I think our bodies and our metabolisms are just a little too complex for that. So what the Mediterranean diet was, it says, let's not overanalyze, you know, each individual molecule. You know, let's, you know, eat whole, natural, healthy foods and, uh, you know, just stick to what nature gave us, and um, and and that's what that's what I like about it. it you know, it, it doesn't really restrict you from eating anything, uh, but it certainly encourages, you know, mostly plant-based, um, whole food diet that's consumed, you know, with seasonal local ingredients. And when I lived in Italy, you know, that's what I found to be the norm. It's like here when you people talk about that. And, and it's true. I mean, our, our food delivery systems aren't set up to accommodate that choice. So we have to make a real effort here to find the organic food and to, you know, f figure out what's in season and, and to prepare it at home it takes a lot of time, which, you know, we don't always have in our, our busy, you know, U.S. lifestyle. So. so if someone were to come to you and ask you, give me like a brief description other than that one of the Mediterranean diet, what would you tell them? Yeah, well, it's certainly plant-based. Uh, I know there's been some talk and we will get into this in a minute but it's plant-based very little meat even not that much fish uh, a lot of you know legumes so a lot of lentils uh, and beans um, also uh, you know olive oil healthy fats so you want healthy fats instead of uh, the animal fats the, the, which are you know obviously we know can lead to heart disease and and to uh, certain types of cancer um, and so, and so, you know, it, it's also a lifestyle. It's not just the food. It's also when you eat, how often you eat, who you eat with. Um, are you rushing through your meal? Are you taking time? Are you walking afterwards? Uh, and so all these things I found in Italy that just happened naturally that I have to make a real effort to reproduce uh, in my life here in the U.S. You mentioned on your blog that when you came back to America from Italy, you found it so difficult to implement it, but then you followed six steps to re-implement the Mediterranean diet. Can you tell me about those six steps? Yeah, wow, I hope I can remember. <laughs> but you got me. No, the first one is just to remove all the junk. So, you know, what, what my, what I'm in that blog post, what I, what I suggested is, you know, it's kind of overwhelming to say, okay, it's January 1st, I'm gonna start this amazing new lifestyle. I'm gonna, I'm gonna exercise. I'm gonna, you know, stop eating junk food. I'm gonna prepare my own meals. But if you, if you take it sort of in these steps, you know, it makes it easier. So the first step, and you could take as long as you want on each step, but the first one is just eliminate all the junk. You know, don't worry about, you know, whatever else you eat, 
just get rid of the chips and the cookies and the, you know, the fast food, the soft drinks, the stuff we know is junk. It's pretty easy to do. And you just get rid of that and don't worry about too much else in that first step. Um, and then I, I, maybe you have that in front of you, but I, I don't know if the second or third step was to uh, is to start looking at portion control. So, uh, you know, watch the snacking, you know, don't go, watch the second helpings and kind of stuff like that. So still eat whatever you want, except the junk. And then, uh, you know, try to start with the portion control. Um, <laughs> do you happen to have it? In front of I, 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 I of course you don't have it in front of you, but. Uh, let, let let me pull yeah. it up if, if we got a little bit of time here because I um, I should I should have I should have been ready. That's for okay. That, That's... But, um... <laughs> so I think um, uh, have you read Peter Atia's book Outlive? I haven't read that one. I, I've I've read a lot of these types of things, and um, you know I I really enjoy um, you know other people's takes on this. I, I like it when they you know when they're talking about something that's um, you know doable, sustainable, and that isn't super exclusive where, you know, you just can't hardly eat anything, you know, but maybe tell me more about it. What, what is that one? So his book starts like your uh, six steps where he talks about remove the junk. And the second step he talks about is portion control because yeah. the amount of calories Americans eat is just absurd. And I'm guilty of yeah. that too. And I find that it's, it's so hard to control these portions. Well, especially when you go uh, to a restaurant or even, you know, to someone's house and, and you know, you're, you're sort of uh, encouraged to, to eat more. I mean, you, you can't, I mean, I swear you order some things at, at a restaurant and, you know, the size of the portion is enough for two, but there it is in front of you. So you kind of feel obligated to eat it. Um, all right. I found my, my steps here. So yeah. Uh, yeah. The most, number two is portion control. Uh, and then you know, the third one I said is to narrow your food window. This is sort of in line with this, um, you know, time restricted eating, they call it, or intermittent fasting. So it's, you know, it doesn't have to be anything ridiculous, but say you're just going to consume all your food between 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. That's reasonable. I mean, that's, you know, one of the big problems we have with our diet is this late night snacking, eating right before you go to sleep. And also eating, you know, a big meal first thing in the morning, like, you know, the big American breakfast with bacon and eggs and toast and hash browns and grits and everything. The first thing in the morning is not healthy either. You know, when you go to the Mediterranean countries, they have very little for breakfast and often it's just a coffee in the, in the beginning. They, their hunger won't kick in or they won't eat anything. You know, if they, if they ha eat, wake up at 8 and they have a coffee at 8.30, they won't eat anything actually until like 9.30, 10. And it'll even then be very small because they're, they're saving their appetite for a nice lunch. So... Um, that's that's another thing you know that we can try is you know narrowing that food window. I mean the extreme of that is you know the the time restricted eating where people say okay you don't eat anything at all until like noon and then you stop eating at like six or seven and then you know so you try to get as narrow as possible. Now they say that if you do that that alone even regardless of what you do eat during the window you're going to lose weight or you're going to get healthier. Uh, I wouldn't rely on that alone, but that's an, it's a nice addition to an overall lifestyle. Sometimes I find that if I restrict the window too much, then I'll, I can overeat anything personally, but I'll overeat even within that four hour window and end up gaining weight or plateauing because I go too hard in the four hours. Yep. Yep. That's, that's a real, uh, real challenge. I, I think, I mean, for a lot of people, I mean, you, you got to find out what works for you and find out maybe which foods can sustain you a little more, you know, instead of making you feel that hunger, you know, right away. But, um, 
you know, it's doable. I, I've never done a four hour window. I, I think the best I get to is like, yeah, like from 10 to six. So it was that an eight hour window. Um, that's about the best I, I ever have done uh, for any, you know, prolonged period of time. Um, but, you know, the other thing we can do is add a little movement. So this isn't diet specific, obviously, but, you know, they, anytime you look at the blue zones or, um, you know, any of these, uh, you know, the, the slow food movement, all these people say, listen, you know, it's not just what you eat, it's your overall lifestyle. So, you know, and walking, I saw in, uh, in the New York Times today had a, an article about the benefits of walking. And so walking is just amazing for us. And if we can do it, you know, 20 minutes a day, especially if it's like, you know, after a meal, I mean, you, you don't want to go running, jogging or doing, you know, like a marathon right after you eat, but a nice slow walk, um, or even a little brisk walk is, is nice. And that was one thing in Italy also that I found was there, that was sort of built into the day as well. So you have this, you know, a afternoon, maybe not as much in the afternoon because, you know, you don't want to be out in the heat of the day, but they have the evening passeggiata where there was this, always a designated street in every town where people would go for a walk after dinner. And it was, it was a social thing is a little bit of exercise, get some fresh air and you say hi to your friends. And, you know, so that that's part of a, of a lifestyle, not necessarily a diet, but I think it all, you know, it all works in synergy. Well, absolutely. And the more I learn about health style, happiness and longevity, diet is, although it's an important part, it's a small part compared to how you're sleeping, your community. And it feels, it sounds like you're explaining that in Italy, community was much stronger than it is back here in America. It is. Um, it is. And, and particularly, you know, the, the family unit, I mean, the extended family unit with the with the parents, the grandparents, the, the uncles, aunts and cousins, you know, that was extremely, you know, people, they would get together every Sunday and, you know, as much as possible, really, they call each other every day and they're really part of each other's lives. Where here it's more of a check in from time to time, you know, I, at least that's his, how it is in my family now. And um, that's it's just what our culture sort of dictates. It's not really even a conscious choice. It's just how, you know, our culture operates. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it all works together. Like you said, the sleeping is so important. It's so important um, to all your mental health. And, you know, that, of course, that affects your, your physical health. And, you know, there's, I, I'm not really a sleep expert at all, but I mean, I, you know, people talk about, you know, increased levels of cortisol if you're, uh, you know, if you're not sleeping well, it's, it did, but um yeah, that's part of it. But, you know, going back to the diet, I mean, you know, the, uh, my step five is to reduce the animal protein. And this is where this sort of conflicts with a lot of these, uh, you know, I, I want to say fad diets, but, you know, they've been around a while. So um, I remember I tried the, the Atkins diet back uh, in the early 2000s, lost a lot of weight really quick, you know, by just eating what is it, eggs and meat and bacon. And, you know, they, they encourage you to eat all this stuff. And I did it and uh, I did lose weight. But, you know, I just think from a lifestyle standpoint, it's just not sustainable. It's not easy to maintain and it, it's just not healthy because, you know, increased risk of heart disease, uh, certain types of, um, uh, of cancers. And I, I know there's people out there are big proponents of this. I think the, this, the, the long-term population data says otherwise. So, uh, I mean, I don't know, like I said, I mean, with these things like the blue zones, what they did instead of going to a lab and trying to, analyze the molecules that produce a healthy outcome, they say, well, we already have these populations, these isolated populations around the world that live to be 100 and more, you know, on a regular, I mean, way more than the, you know, the global average. So let's analyze these people and see what they're doing. Um, 
and the you know the ones they picked were always very isolated like this place in Sardinia it's an island to start with and these huge mountains and this little community inside this valley this mountain range I mean you know traditionally they couldn't really get in and out of there very easy so they were very isolated with their diet and with their lifestyle and these are the people that live to be a hundred you know they walk a lot they drink one glass of wine two glasses of wine every day they eat only what they sort of grow locally and you you have these you know these old men herding sheep at 90 years old and so you know how can you reproduce that in a laboratory and do some sort of double blind you know study you really can't so that's why this sort of reductive thinking about you know this molecule or that molecule is bad i think that that model kind of breaks down when you when you look at it more holistically and i love your take on that because in one of your podcasts you talk about the benefits of red wine and you can't pull how do you say it restrava with an r yeah resveratrol i think i, I have always yeah, had a hard time with you that can't word. pull that out of the mediterranean diet and say this pill will make you live longer when it's everything else because i've been to sardinia i'm saying that wrong but I mean, yeah i went there on actually on my honeymoon and oh wow i haven't been there how was nobody's it? stressed everyone's having a good time yeah. <laughs> and stress kills so it's not like two right? glasses of wine if you're stressed as hell everywhere else is going to make you healthier and you make that point in your podcast as well yep that's for sure yeah i, I just think it's really dangerous thinking just try to pull these little facts or molecules or you know small little things out, out of a out of a some other regime and say okay if i just insert this into my life it's going to be better so you know uh yeah and, and the the other one was the was the gluten i mean you know I, I think there's a lot of problems with wheat probably because you know these days it's been um genetically altered and you know it's it's been mass produced and highly refined so once you break down all that you know whatever these things are that are made from that wheat probably aren't that healthy but you know to say that gluten is the villain I think is misguided in my opinion the gluten that you eat in America do you feel different than the gluten that you eat in Italy yeah again I don't know because because I don't I don't really know what the gluten is I can say the pasta that I eat in Italy makes me feel better than the pasta I eat in the US so if that's the gluten or if that's something else in the wheat I'm not really sure so again that's that's kind of my point it's like you know um, I can't say if it's the gluten. I mean, I, I would just say, you know, looking at it's the overall diet. And if you're talking about pasta, yeah, I think you just get different pasta made from different wheat that is not highly refined, that is not genetically altered, that is not sprayed with pesticides. And so when you look at all those other things, it's like, why are we blaming the gluten, which people have been eating for hundreds, if not thousands of years, when, you know, these recent additions to our uh, our food source, meaning the you know, genetically altered uh, plants, the pesticides, and the highly refined nature of them after they're harvested. Why aren't we blaming those things instead of this this mystery molecule that you know everyone seems to think is the devil? But you know, I mean, people don't get me wrong. People who have celiac disease absolutely should avoid gluten. But um, just the way people who are allergic to peanuts should avoid peanuts, or you know, lactose intolerant people should avoid milk. But um, again, I, I wouldn't just want to say that, okay, because someone with celiac disease does well on a gluten-free diet means that it's good for me too. I, I, that, that logic doesn't hold up for me. I mean, that's, that's just my opinion. So what's number six? So number six is to, well, this is, again, that's a perfect lead-in. So replace the, the, the bad carbs with the good carbs. So people talk about carbs are good or fats are bad or, you know, more protein is good. But I, I think we should say, you know, people lump in carbs and say, okay, I'm trying to cut down on carbs. Well, yes, I think we should cut down on, you know, candy bars and glazed donuts. But 
those are those are carbs, right? But uh, that doesn't mean we should cut down on you know pasta and uh, you know artisanal bread and um, you know things. And, and by the way, you know vegetables are mostly carbs, right? So I mean, why would we avoid carbs? You know, I, I, that that's just gets back to the, the you know the the naming of things or the misnaming of things. So uh, I, I just get a little frustrated when people say you know carbs are bad or I want a low carb diet. You know, okay, well. What are you eliminating? If you're eliminating candy bars and glazed donuts, then good for you. You should be doing that. But if you're eliminating, you know, pasta because you think that's the, the enemy, then I think that's misguided, in my opinion. So I had previous guests, and they follow the carnivore diet. Have you heard of that? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's the same thing as the paleo, or the uh, basically it's it's keto, paleo, something. I mean, it's very closely related to that. Um, Again, I, I think there are some short-term benefits to that, namely weight loss, um, and you know, lowering your uh, A1C or your glucose or, or whatever you're trying to do as far as fighting type two diabetes. Definitely those things, but you, then you're also putting yourself at risk for heart disease and certain types of cancer, which the plant-based diet, you know, has shown to be protective against those things. Um, you know, we're dentists, right? You and I are both dentists and we've studied the, the dentition and, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we understand that we have both molars like a cow to, you know, to chew vegetables and we have canines like a, like a tiger to eat meat. So we're omnivores and, um, you know, we can't eat anything. And the, you know, the, the difficult part is that, you know, with these days we can eat anything because everything is available to us. So the Mediterranean diet evolved when, uh, you know, meat was scarce and, you know, plants were easy and cheap. And so it wasn't a choice. If you ask those people, you know, a hundred years ago living in Sicily, you know, what would you change about your diet? They'd probably say, well, I'd like to add more meat, <laughs> but they couldn't because, because they, did, they couldn't afford it. It wasn't available. So they ate a lot of plants and maybe a little bit of seafood and uh, they were healthier because of it. So they weren't eating it because they thought it was healthier. They ate it because that's what they had. And, um, you know, and, and we have the, the data now from that uh, experiment to, um, to, to prove that, you know, this is the healthier way to go uh, for a lifetime. Now, again, there are, there are arguments to be made for short-term changes to our diet for the purposes of weight loss. Um, I've done some more aggressive, uh, aggressive fasting protocols, which again, um, for a short term, I, I did the five-day fasting mimicking diet, uh, and that did great. But I wouldn't do it for more than five days or you know a week, not without direct supervision of a physician. And that's the other thing. It's like it, when people talk about uh, longevity studies, I, I think the only regime that's really been proven, uh, at least in laboratory animals, and, and to some uh, anecdotal evidence in human populations, that extreme fasting can be a real game changer as far as anti-aging. Um, Again, I, I don't have the data in front of me to, to cite, but they've done a lot of animal studies that where they've, you know, reduced the calorie, the total calorie intake in mice by 80% and found they had an 80% increase in lifespan. So, I mean, it was really a direct correlation as, as clear as that. Nobody can do that, though. I mean, you can't live like that. You can't, you can't, you know, eat one salad a day and then that's all you're going to have. Uh, it's not reasonable, but that's uh, apparently caloric restriction is is the fountain of youth if you are interested in doing that but i, th I think it's a miserable way to live i i would rather live 10 years less and not not Me be too. hungry every day so Me what too. is a fasting mimicking diet 
Yeah, okay. Um, this is uh, developed by, uh, a, a, not, he's not a physician, he's, um, he's a molecular biologist. Uh, his name is Walter Longo. He's from Italy, uh, but he's now working at the University of California University of Southern California, and he developed this thing called Prolon, and it's, uh, well, that was, I guess, bought and, you know, commercialized a little bit, um, but what it does was he, he developed this five-day plan where it it mimics, it, it's actually a very similar, and, and we could talk about this, so we were talking about the the short-term effects of the keto diet or the or the carnivore diet or the, um, the, the what's the other one, the paleo, I think they're all pretty similar, the Atkins. And it's, it's, it involves ketosis. So the ketosis is when you get to a metabolic state where you've used up all the available glucose in your bloodstream. And so your body goes after metabolizing the fat in order to have energy. Um, and so that's also what this fasting mimicking diet does. It restricts the calories to the point and it restricts the glucose the, to the point where your body has to use, uh, it produces ketones that, you know, metabolize the fat. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's done a lot of research on it, and it, they're now looking at it for a protocol for uh, as an adjunct to cancer therapy. It seems to be protective against cancer. Um, and so, you know, again, he's if you go to his site, I think it's, uh, if you look up Walter Longo, Walter with a V, it's uh, Longo, L-O-N-G-O. Uh, he's doing a lot of interesting stuff. He's saw the guru of longevity now. He had a book called The Longevity Diet. And, you know, beyond what it can do, um, similar to the keto diet or the, the paleo carnivore diet, um, which also does the same thing as far as the ketosis. The, the fasting does another thing, which um, is it has an anti-aging property. It's the autophagy. So it's when the cells sort of eat themselves, they, they clean up themselves, they, they kill the bad stuff and they, they reproduce them new ones. So it's a, it's a way of cellular regeneration, which, uh, you know, many years ago, I had a undergrad degree in biochemistry i mean and i understood this stuff a lot better than that i than i do now but um you know it, it's it's an anti-aging process where i don't know if you remember in your uh, cellular biology classes the the process of mitosis when these telomeres would sort of pull apart the strands of the dna to replicate uh, a new uh, two new cells from the original um and in that what happens as we age is those telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter and they're not able to regenerate as efficiently as when we're younger but apparently this fasting stage uh, reproduces that and it, it has an anti-aging effect by causing this autophagy which destroys the bad cells and re regenerates them with new new cells so this is the, again the fountain of youth if you want to engage in you know some fasting protocols um you know, not many people can maintain it as a lifestyle, but, you know, you, anybody can probably do it for five days, I think. So if it's called fasting mimicking, are you not actually fasting for five days? Right. So mimicking, exactly. Good point. Uh, so I should have mentioned that. So he, he, he creates this uh, diet plan where you do eat some food. And it's sort of um, interesting because he eliminates all the sort of uh, simple carbohydrates and you're having like soups olives, um, you know, some of these like high fiber crackers. I mean, it's not wonderful. It's, it's like, you know, comes, the soup comes in packages. It's like astronaut food. It's not, it's nothing you'd want to do long-term, but, uh, for five days, it's not that bad. And it, it comes in a box and each box has five little boxes in it. And each box represents one day's worth of food. And, um, 
yeah, you follow the plan for five days and it produces that first the ketosis and then the autophagy, which, you know, is, is supposed to be very healing, anti-inflammatory, you know, because they say now inflammation is the big, the, the C-reactive protein is the big uh, marker that they look for now as far as, you know, a lot of things, including uh, inflammation of coronary arteries causing coronary artery disease um, and a lot of other, you know, I, I would say degenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's, including cancer, including, yeah, a lot of that stuff. So. Were you attracted to this way of eating and living before you moved to Italy, or once you got there, it turned you on? Once I got there, I mean, I, I had, I, I had before I got there, I had tried the Atkins diet as a fad diet once, and it worked for me. But you know, I, I realized I couldn't do that, so I went back to my normal American lifestyle and eating and everything. Uh, but then I, when I got to Italy and I just observed this and lived it, I was like, wow. I mean, that's the other thing. I'll give you an anecdote here. I mean, again, anecdotes are never proof of anything. But, you know, when I moved to Italy and I started eating all this wonderful Italian food, going to restaurants, not often, you know, two or three times a week. Uh, but, you know, living with my Italian girlfriend and, and eating, uh, you know, what she ate and, and what everybody around us ate. And I thought, well, I'm eating all this great food. <laughs> and then before I knew it, I didn't even realize I was losing weight. And then I went to the doctor there and just for a checkup, I had my cholesterol checked and my cholesterol had gone way down. And I was like, wow, uh, you know, here I expected it to be bad news and it turned out to be the opposite. Uh, because again, I, you know, as we talked about earlier, it was more of a lifestyle because I was certainly walking a lot more. I mean, you know, we lived in the center of Rome and I, we, we, we didn't have a car and I walked everywhere. Um, and, um, you know, it was, and I was only eating basically kind of skipping breakfast, I would have a, a, an espresso and maybe a little cornetto, which is a like a croissant, basically. And, uh, and and then I wouldn't eat again until, you know, 1, 1.30 for lunch. And then I wouldn't have any snacks. And then I would have a nice dinner at, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And then, then I would go to bed around midnight and I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't eat anything in the, in the evening. So basically two good meals and one sort of, you know, semi-breakfast. And that was all I ate. And I was eating very well, but it just, you know, I, I, the frequency was less, the portion size was smaller, and the quality was higher. So, you know, if you look at it over the course of a day, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But over the course of a year, I mean, it, it makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. Were you hungry in the beginning for eating less? I, I would say no, because, I mean, the food is satisfying, and I, I think I was just, you know, it's a very active lifestyle. Like I said, you're walking here, you're meeting a friend, you're having a coffee, uh, and you were distracted enough and, and in your daily work. I mean, there wasn't the availability of snacking. So maybe at first you're looking for a snack and you didn't find it, so you go back to whatever you were doing, and then eventually you just sort of lose that uh, craving for it. And I, th I think it was a natural occurrence. I didn't really, there was nothing conscious about me changing my lifestyle when I got there. I, I was excited to eat all the great food, of course, but I never thought about it as a, as a, as a dietary, you know, improvement. I just thought about it as, well, I'm going to eat this great food. Let's hope I don't gain weight. And I, actually the opposite happened. So. Have you read the book, The Great Cholesterol Myth? Yes. Uh, that's, a, and again, uh, I believe in that. I'm, I'm a I'm a believer in that because again, you know, like we were talking about in the diet, I think blaming cholesterol for heart disease alone is misguided. I mean, um, 
I, I think I, I mentioned to you before we were talking, I worked at Pfizer when I was in Rome and it was the, right at the time they were losing their patent on the Lipitor molecule, which is the, which is the, the king of the Grand Slam home rum drugs of any company's ever had. I can't remember the number right now, but I mean, they made billions on that globally. And of course, you know, and so the reason it was, I, when I got to Pfizer, I was like, oh, wow, you guys make Viagra, you must be making a lot of money. And, and they're like, they're, they're like, well, you know, Viagra gives us some good press and it's a nice, you know, it's a good punchline to a few jokes, but, um, you know, they said it doesn't even come close to what we make on Lipitor, not even close because, you know, Lipitor prescribed to someone in their forties, you know, they're going to take it twice a day, every day for the rest of their life. And you multiply that by the number of people in the U S especially who have high cholesterol, that is a, that's just a cash cow. And that's exactly where they just made so much money on that. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, I, I am a believer in the myth of, of this, this cholesterol myth. And because I think it's one thing to look at, but I, I think we just put way too much emphasis on it and, and make it sound like it's the, it's the thing that causes heart disease. And it's not, it's, it's, it's one of probably dozens of things that contribute and there are plenty of people with high cholesterol that have no heart disease. And there are plenty of people with low cholesterol that do have heart attacks. So, Oh yeah. They talk in that book about the Mediterranean diet. That's why I was going to bring it up. And they think, although it's the food, they keep going back to what you keep going back to. It's community. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, I guess in America, we're always stressed. We use food a lot as anti-anxiety medication or food for anti-depression. Did you find in Italy, you relied more on community for that? Or what, what was the difference that you kept not going back to food when you do in right. America? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think when you talk about community, I, I think that's more preventative medicine than it is sort of palliative. Uh, you know, um, and food tends to be more palliative, you know, where you, you, you consume it at that moment when you're feeling the anxiety. Um, so, but yeah, I, I think the community is always there. So if you're, if you're stressed about something, you have people to reach out to, to talk about that. And I think that unburdening of it, of knowing that there are other people who care about your, uh, your stress, whatever that thing is in your life, that's causing you that at the moment is uh, very palliative in that and relieving of that stress. And you don't have to look for other things. And you know, of course, not only food, I mean, it could be drugs or alcohol, it could be, you know, other addictions, but, um, and that's another thing. It's like, you know, that people talk about the Italians that how much wine they drink. But I tell you, I mean, they, they just do not have a problem in, in Italy with alcoholism. It's just not, it's just not a thing. Uh, I, I, what part of it's cultural? I mean, there's a very, um, there's a, what's the word I'm looking for? Stigma against being drunk in public. I mean, oh, here okay. it's almost, you know, the, yeah, I mean, it's like, you don't, you don't want to do that. You're going to embarrass yourself. You're going to embarrass your family. You know, God forbid your boss finds out about it. Uh, you can't, you can't be drunk in public. It's just not a thing. So, and if you offer someone a drink, a lot of times they'll say, I remember meeting friends and say, Hey, let's have a glass of wine. Well, I haven't eaten anything today or I haven't eaten much today. I'm like, well, so what's that have to do with the wine? <laughs> yeah. Well, I never, I never drink anything on an empty, on an empty stomach. They would tell me. So, and that, that's a big rule of the Mediterranean diet is that you, whenever you have wine, it's always with food. So even if you go for like a, a five or six o'clock uh, happy hour, they call it aperitivo. Uh, I think it's even the law in Italy that, that the restaurant or the bar has to give you something to eat with that 
alcoholic beverage, whether it's wine or whatever. Um, so they'll, even if it's just some olives and nuts they may put in front of you, or sometimes they're little tiny sandwiches or, um, you know, something like that. It's always a small little thing. Some places it's a big thing. It's you can almost make a meal out of it, but it's, um, and, and every time you order, if you order a second drink, they'll bring you more. And so, um, it's just their cultural thing. They don't, they don't believe it's healthy to drink any kind of alcohol, even wine, uh, on an empty stomach. So, um, and I, and I think that sort of, you know, reduces, um, the effects of the alcohol, you know, sort of on your brain and everything, but also, yeah, I mean, it just it aids in the, di the alcohol aids the digestion of the food and it's sort of a symbiotic thing and it, they go together. They're not, you know, again, part of the lifestyle. Well, it seems like the way you describe it, in Italy, they drink to, for social connection. And in America, you drink more to escape your problems. Yeah, it's just like the food, as you were mentioning earlier, it's it's an escape. It's a self-medication. Uh, what did you call it? You called it, yeah, something like oh, that. Oh, yeah, like anti-anxiety um, drug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's an anti-anxiety drug at that point. And, it, it, and we know that it works in the short term, but it's not healthy as a lifestyle. And that's always the allure of some of these things is whether it be food or alcohol or, or whatever is that, you know, there's always that short term win, you know, without the eye on the on sort of the big picture and the long term effects. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a really big proponent of, you know, the, the diet, but just sort of, you know, as we've been talking about incorporating it into a larger lifestyle. And that's, that's the, that's the important. Well, isn't that foundational? Like every human is like the struggle between short-term pleasure or gain and the long-term vision. That's where like, well, we're all in credit card debt and overweight. That's right. <laughs> that too. Yeah, that's right. I think you can extrapolate that to spending habits as well. And sometimes spending can be uh, an anti-anxiety drug. Uh, oh yeah. Retail therapy. I've known, I've known people like that. Retail therapy. There's a word for it. So, um, so yeah, um, I, I think it's really um, interesting that, uh, you know, I, I discovered this, um, you know, just by accident, by being there and just, you know, and, and I wasn't there as a tourist, uh, you know, I actually lived there and I worked there and I socialized there. So I think if you go there for a couple of weeks or even a month or longer, but you're sort of isolated in either a tourist environment or an expat environment, which that could happen too, is if you, if you move to a country and you just hang around with expats from your country or, you know, um, that you know, then you're missing the whole point and the whole benefit of, of the, of the, you know, experience of living in a foreign country. Um, so what drove but, you to move to Italy after you left dentistry? Well, let's get back to that because, I mean, that's, you know, living dentistry was a big part of it. Yeah, that. tell um, me about it. Well, I was going through a, a, um, a real change in my life. See, what happened with me in dentistry, and, and let's, you know, I, maybe this sounds familiar to others, is as um, I, I was in a, you know, let's see, I must have been, this was, I must have just turned 40 maybe 40 or so. And my dad's 22 years older than me. So he was like 62 thinking about retirement, but not wanting to retire yet. Um, we were practicing together and this company came along and I won't mention them by name. There's only, there's only a few of them in the country anyway, but they, they were buying up all the practices in Florida and they came in and this was before the big recession hit. So this was 2006. Um, and they came in and said, Hey, we really like your practice. We think you guys would be a great addition to our company. Um, and here's the check. And I'm like, dad, we got to take this. And he, and he, well, I mean, he was looking for his, his exit strategy anyway, at that point, cause you know, he was nearing retirement age. 
side note to that, he went on to practice. He just retired last year at 79. So, oh, wow. Or 78. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so he wound up sticking around because he loved dentistry and, it, you know, he really, but, but we did sell the practice and, and they gave, they said, okay, but we need a two-year transition. We need you to introduce your patients to our staff and our way of doing things. We'll pay you a uh, salary and commission, you know, for your two years. But, you know, now we own the practice. You are our employees, you know, for two years. At the end of your two years, you can either keep working for us, which my dad did, or uh, you can leave, which I did. And, you know, there was obviously there was a non-compete clause. So it wasn't like I could set up shop next door and just bring all my patients over. Uh, but I was ready for a change. I had some other things going on in my life. And I'm like, this is this is my chance. If I ever want to really change my life and do something different, uh, I, this is my shot. I mean, it's staring me right in the face. So I, I took it and, uh, I, I finished. Okay. So the 2006, they bought us, this was October, 2006. They bought our practice in October, 2008. My, um, my time, my two years with them was up. I was on a plane to Italy three days later. Maybe it was even two days. Later. <laughs> I just, that was my, that was my, I think I got that fixed in my mind. I'm like, I'm going to go. So I, the first time I went, I only went for three months. And uh, I just wanted to try it out. I wound up in Bologna, uh, which is a great city, but just miserable weather and really very dark and dreary. And um, and uh, I, I loved it, though. I had a great experience. I traveled around Europe a lot while I was there. I went to a couple of different countries. I went to Prague. I, spent, I traveled all over Italy. And, uh, and then I went back to the U.S. after three months, um, moved to Fort Lauderdale. My sisters were living there at the time. Two, two of my three sisters were living there. So I just got an apartment on the beach, and I, I basically, you know, I sat on the beach and drank mojitos for three months and um, believe it or not, that gets old. <laughs> I was like, this sucks. I'm bored to death. I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, so I was like, okay, you know what? I left dentistry, um, but it was a big part of my life. I need to make sure that that's behind me. So I applied for a job and I got a job with a, a company in Fort Lauderdale as a, as a part-time dentist, uh, you know, as a, I'm not even an associate. I was just, a, I was hired to work two days a week. Um, and so I did that for a year. And I would say even like the first month or two into it, I'm like, this is not going to work out long term. I'm just not going to do that. Um, and so I actually went back to, to college at that point. I already had my bachelor's. I already had my DDS. But I went back to college to study um, to study Italian, Italian studies. So it was, you know, language, literature, uh, an art of Italy. And, um, and so I started taking classes in, in language and, you know, just studying the culture. And their their class their their program goes to uh, goes to Italy every every summer, and I, they said, well, we're having a summer program in Italy if you want to join us. And so I said, okay. And I went back for three more months uh, with them, and then that was my final thing. I'm like, okay, this is it. I'm coming back. So I had to go back to Florida and get my paperwork, get my visa, and all that. But then that's when I returned and stayed stayed for quite a while. So that that was my escape from dentistry, I guess. Um, you know. And then people, the one thing that I did, and, and maybe this was good, maybe this was bad, is I, I intentionally burned the bridge. I, I, when my license came up for renewal, I didn't, I didn't renew it. And um, there have been times when I thought if that maybe that was a mistake because I, it's been hard to, you know, sort of reinvent myself in my 40s and now I'm in my 50s. Um, but every time I think in my mind, if I really do like a, like a mind exercise, like put myself back in that position, I'm like, nope. I couldn't do it. It doesn't matter the situation. It doesn't matter the money. It doesn't matter what. I just can't do it. It's just not who I am. And so 
Um, I'm still, you know, trying to find my way now. I do digital marketing. I do, you know, SEO and content strategy and, and all this, you know, you know, internet business stuff, but, um, you know, and, and never going to replace the money I made as a dentist, but, uh, every day I, you know, I get up and I'm happy doing what I do. So, so what about the job would make you willing to take a career that makes less money? Than stay in a career that makes more money. Okay. Well, first, let's let's be clear. I, at the, when I made that decision, I had no responsibility. So I went when I got went to Italy and I got I got married and had a child. Uh, then that changed things. So you know that's why I said sometimes when I question myself, I think back. Well, when I made the decision to leave and I gave up my license, I had absolutely no responsibility. I had all the money in the bank from the sale of my dental practice. I probably could have survive the rest of my life on that if I really wanted to minimize, you know, and I was, I was, I had minimalized my life to the point where I didn't have any debt. I had no possessions other than what I could fit in about three suitcases in my car. Um, and even the car I got rid of eventually. So, um, you know, when I got to that point, it's like, you know, I didn't really need anything. So it wasn't a hard thing to accept at that point. Again, if you have a couple of kids and you're married, you have a mortgage, that's different. I didn't have any of that. And so, Okay, I went from making, you know, X number of dollars to, you know, a quarter of that. Fine, a, qu a quarter of it's more than I need, actually. I mean, I, I could live off of even less. Um, so, but then, you know, life gets more complicated. You get a mortgage, you have a child. And, um, and so now it's a little more of a struggle, you know, financially. And again, even under those conditions, when I think about, you know, damn, maybe I should have kept my dental license, first of all, I don't know if I could still do it, you know, like as far as the hand skills. I mean, I, I think I could, you know, the other stuff, the knowledge would come back pretty quick, but the hand skills, uh, I haven't done that for 10 years or more now. What is it? Two, 2000. Last time I practiced was 2010. So 13 years now. Wow. Um, so yeah, I don't think I could go back to it, but, um, I have had some experience working with dentists on, on the, on a marketing side, you know, working on websites for dentists and, you know, uh, digital marketing campaigns for dentists and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, well, maybe my dental knowledge would help there. And, and actually it, it doesn't, I, I could do that without any, any kind of dental knowledge, but, um, I would say for somebody who's got some serious financial commitments, you, you, you have to make a slower transition. I absolutely just cut the cord and went. I mean, it was literally, you know, people say the, the dream, you know, it's like, you know, screw everything and go off to another country. I did that and it was wonderful. Uh, but, you know, at a certain point it catches up to you and you got to say, okay, now I got to live the rest of my life. And so how am I going to do that? And I've managed, but it's, it's been work. I would say anybody thinking about doing that, really, you need to lay the groundwork. You know, I would start years before you're actually going to make the move. I would say five years is not an unreasonable amount of time to start creating a different source of income or just uh, maybe downsizing your life or whatever it's going to have to be to, to make that transition because financially it's not going to be easy. Um, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. That said, it was worth it to me. I, I would do it again. Well, I don't consider it a mistake. It sounds like making, we'll just say 100,000 and then making 25,000 one-fourth your level of happiness did not reduce. It actually went up. That's true. That's a good statement. Yep. That's a good statement. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, I mean, dentistry gave me a lot. It gave me, you did give me a lot of financial freedom. It gave me that opportunity to go to Italy like that with money in my pocket when I wouldn't have had that. Um, 
you know, I don't have any debt today other than my mortgage. And, and that's, you know, thanks to dentistry. And I still got some of that money in the bank from the sale of my practice. So, I mean, you know, the only thing I would have done differently, and again, this goes back to what I said just a minute ago, was if I, if I would have done it differently, I would have done a lot more planning. I had two years, uh, you know, I sold my practice and I had two years working for that company where I could have been planning a second career. And I didn't because again, at the time, I didn't have a family, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have anything that sort of forced me to think about that. And I, that's that's the one regret I have is not quitting, but not planning for my second career after dentistry. Because it took me, it's taken me a long time to catch up. Uh, and I'm caught up now, not to the point where I was making the same money as I was as a dentist, but now I can sustain myself well with what I, with what I do. But, you know, uh, I, my advice to anybody would be, as long as you plan it, you got a plan, maybe even a plan B, just in case plan A doesn't work out. Don't don't be afraid to move forward with that. I mean, you don't have to chuck it all and, and today and go do something else, but start laying down the foundation. Get a second skill. You know, the skill that I have now with the digital marketing, I, I could have been working on that for two years. So I, that, that cost me two years to catch up on that. Um, you know, whatever that skill is and, and just work on that. And then when you are ready to make the transition, you'll, you'll have something to work with. It won't be just, you won't be just floating around, you know, grasping at air. I think you're being a little too harsh on yourself and I'm not lecturing you, but you, no, please. I yeah, you. you had the courage to leave dentistry. And like, I think your, your regret would have been higher if you stayed in dentistry than the regret you have for not planning as well as you could have. Yeah. Because imagine how yeah. old are you now? In your, you said you're in fifties. Yeah. So imagine you're. I'm fifty-seven. Imagine you're fifty-seven yeah. and you're still a dentist. Now, how do you leave dentistry? What are you planning to do? You can't. At that point, you can't. No, no. You're, you're, you're. I mean, even now, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there. Yeah. There's no way. You're right. That's a good point. Um, I might not even be alive if I would have stayed in dentistry. I was so stressed out some days. You know, I mean, the stress alone can kill you. But. Um, yeah. I mean, thank you for those words. Yeah. I appreciate that. Cause I, I mean, there are times when, you know, people say that to me and I'm like, no, nah, come on. I mean, I, you know, but yeah, I mean, again, I still wish I would have planned better, but I'm also, I also, I don't regret it though. I don't regret it. What about the job? Did you not like? <sighs> Boy, I mean, there, there was a lot. Uh, let me, let me mention what I did like first. I, I, I loved my office, my office staff. I loved working with my dad every day. You know, that was great. Uh, we were, you know, we're still close and, uh, you know, that part of it, I certainly miss. We had a great partner too. He was my best, one of my best friends at the time, because I mean, you know, we were again together every day. Uh, so I miss the people, uh, that, that was the good part. I, you know, obviously the income is a good part too. Um, the, the part that I didn't like, I, I think was sort of this, I don't know. It was like, you, you know, certainly the, the work itself is tedious, you know, working in such a small confined space, focusing your eyes and your attention so intensely for every hour of the day. Um, and then, you know, there's always that chance that while you're doing the, the you know, the, the crown prep, the patient's going to jump and then you're going <laughs> to yeah. put the bird into their tongue or something. But, um, you know, th there's that, that sort of, 
always on edge feeling. I guess that was it. And sort of, and there was, you know, there was a lot of monotony too. I mean, basically, I mean, let's face it. I mean, I, at the time, I, I think that general dentists did a lot more of the specialty stuff. I mean, I, I certainly did endo. I certainly did uh, extractions, um, dentures. Uh, I, I did a lot of fixed prosthetics, you know, so, but there was still a, a good amount of monotony and that, and that, and that sort of soul sucking too. I think, you know, you, you just get in and you say, and someone comes in for a toothache and what, it's basically only five things it can be. Um, I mean, I don't know. I forgot. <laughs> so long, but, uh, I mean, um, and so it's not like, you know, for, for the most part, and that was one part of dental school I liked was sort of learning about the, the science part of it and the sort of diagnosis and treatment planning. And then at that point, there was still a lot of mystery to it and solving those mysteries was, was satisfying. Uh, but then as after a few years of practice, I mean, there weren't really that many mysteries anymore. And, you know, everything was pretty, pretty much the same thing every day. So um, that, I guess that the, the, the monotony and the tedium and the, and just that the work itself was so intense and tense too. Um, I don't What do you, what do you, what do you feel like? What are your good and bad? Uh, I mean, are you, are you in, in line with what I'm saying or is there something else that strikes you as, as being more, both either on the good or the bad side. I'm in line with what you're saying. We're very similar in terms of I enjoy working with people. I'm very lucky. I have a very good staff. Most of my patients, I love to see. But you're totally right about the high stakes because you're working on a person who's awake. You're working right. in a very small spot. And the although nobody's going to die from a crown prep, it's very easy not to be perfect. And sometimes it's not the dentist's fault when it's not perfect, but you're- I forgot about that. Yeah. Yes, good one. I'm glad I reminded you, but you're not, um, and then you're still at fault. And that's the hardest part right. for me, because maybe you suffer from this too. I'm a perfectionist, yes. which is gonna put me in an early grave, but it kills me when I can't be perfect because the model that I'm working on is hard to work on. Yep. No, that's a good one. I forgot about that. You know, there is that, that that sort of expectation that dentists are, uh, and, and then it, it becomes part of you, even if it's, if you, if you weren't that way already, that you have to be perfect and it's, it can't always be perfect. It just can't, no matter your best effort, you can be the best dentist in the world and you're not going to get it perfect every time. Yeah. There's just no way. And I think something that's maybe different in my career than when you practice, not that you're that much older than me, but, the no, I Google reviews and social media, Oh yeah. Let's say oh, we didn't have yeah, that. Let's say I make one mistake. I, in my ten years of practice, I've made one mistake. Um, I had this one patient that will leave a review every three or four months online, a bad review of me. I get it removed, and this person brings it back up. So now there's a component of sh social shame or public embarrassment that wasn't previously part of the profession. That is for sure. I never had to deal with that. I never had to deal with that. Uh, I, I couldn't deal with that. I, 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 it would be, it would take all of my restraint not to go uh, on a, you know, a digital rampage and, and fight back against that, you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's really tough. I feel for you on that. Cause I, I never, you're right. I never dealt with that. And I'm glad because I, I probably wouldn't have dealt with it very well. So, and I, I get it from the, cause actually I have a lot of patients that listen to this podcast. So I get it from a patient's perspective where like you ever see that podcast, Dr. Death about that neurosurgeon that like, yeah. like you want that person exposed by the public, but there has to be a line between 
the doctor or dentist is doing their best and the Google review is not the most accurate description of this person. Right. Yeah, man, I can't imagine. And then you, you probably, I mean, do you, you have to, you or your staff also act proactive social, uh, social media or on the internet? I mean, do you guys have a Facebook page and all that that you try to yep. like, share the good stuff? I mean, you know, it's, it's run by a marketing company, but yeah, we, you, in this time you have to be proactive because there's so much negativity online. You have to drown it out with your right. positive marketing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel for you. Like I said, I never had to deal with that. Um, so, but I mean, yeah, I mean, the good thing about the dentistry is that all the people stuff it is. And when you help somebody, gosh, I mean, I remember it, it just didn't happen often enough, but once in a while you could really change someone's life either by just dramatically improving their smile or they're in excruciating pain and you relieve that pain. Uh, so those two scenarios, that's what made it worth it. I mean, uh, it just didn't happen often enough. Too much of it was like, you got a cavity, we got to do a, a, a composite or we got to do a crown. Um, you know, the patient didn't walk in in pain. Now all of a sudden you're telling them they need a thousand dollars worth of dental work or something. And so that was another hard one. It's like they, they didn't see the value in it even though you knew as a professional that you were helping them, oftentimes the patient's like, oh, great. Now I got to, you know, I got to make your boat payment for you or something like that. I would hear that comment. And so um, I'm like, well, you know, I'm trying to keep you from losing your teeth. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm not, uh, um, and, but, there, but then once in a while, there was that, just that life-changing moment where, you know, you give someone a new smile or they're, you know, they're in pain, they haven't slept for three nights and you do a, um, you know, you open up the pulp and I mean, you open up the tooth and just it drains out and, and you know, they're getting some instant relief from that. And so, you know, they see you for the follow up and they're like, doc, you saved my life. You know I mean? And, and you hear that and it's great. And that's what kind of keeps you going because, you know, the other stuff is just, you know, it's just tedious, but. So our, yeah, it's part of this. our mutual friend, Laura Brenner said, you'll have an easier career if you sell people what they want instead of what they need. And I, I've been thinking about that for like the past month. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some of that in dentistry. I mean, there are people who um, only do cosmetic dentistry or only, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I, I never found that that was my niche. I mean, I did cosmetic dentistry, but, you know, it was, it's so competitive to to compete for those patients for the high dollar, you know, full mouth crown and bridge type of thing. I mean, that's what people want or they want their teeth whitened. So, you know, what is that? And what there, there just isn't that much dentistry that people want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, even when they. So you're saying, you know, give them what they need. I mean, but yeah. But, yeah. But no, Laura's right. Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually we're coming up in the hour mark. And I always ask two questions before we end. Um, okay. Actually, an extra third question. Can I have you back on? Because we got to talk more about the Mediterranean diet. And you're the only person I know that wrote something positive about Ansel Keys. So I want to get back into that next time we talk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he got a lot of stuff wrong too. Yeah. But, I didn't uh, know he lived to 101. Yeah. Yeah. Deleting the Mediterranean yeah. diet. So what would be <laughs> the biggest takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this podcast? Yeah. I, I would say if you're, I mean, if we're talking, if we're going back to the, well, we're going to talk to your general audience about the Mediterranean diet. I, I would say don't ever get hung up on too much of the, in the way of, um, dissecting any diet or any health regime, 
you know, look for a lifestyle that fits you, that you can sustain. So the Mediterranean diet offers, you know, delicious food that we can, that we can eat every day and be happy and satisfied with and still promotes our health. Don't get caught up on molecules or fads or stuff like that. So that's number one. Uh, for dentists, I would say make your, uh, make your plan and start planning now. Give yourself a few years if you're looking for a way to have a side hustle or an eventual, eventual transition to a different career. And if I can add to that, because I, I think you're just like me where you're pretty self-critical. Um, life is short. If you don't like your profession, like you said, plan and leave. Because the, re the regret you have will be higher if you stayed in it than the regret for leaving. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll even add further to that is that once you start planning for it, you feel better about it. You feel better about your current situation and you feel more optimistic about the future. So even that step of just starting to make those plans, write them down, take the first sign up for a class. Even when you just sign up for that class, you know, you, you want to learn a new skill man, you start feeling better already. Oh, yeah. And I think that gives you a little bit of hope. And then if you ever read uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, like, if you have an ounce of hope, like, you can make it work. So I think planning yep. for that will give you some hope. So one yep. more thing, where can people read more of your stuff, listen more of your podcast? How can they find out more about you? Yeah, I mean, I, my main uh, website that I work on now is the eatlikeanitalian.com. So uh, it's a way of, you know, mimicking the Italian way of the, following a Mediterranean diet. And it talks a little bit about, um, you know, sort of the diet and the science behind it. I try to focus more on the food itself because, again, I don't want to get too caught up in the minutiae of the science. Uh, the science is there. And if you want to reference it, it's great. But I think it's better to just sort of follow by example and, and enjoy the, the wonderful food and check out so eat like an italian and yeah. check out your podcast eat like an italian yeah eat like an italian.com uh the podcast is on the on the website um and you, the podcast is also available on all the platforms spotify and apple podcasts and all that so um yeah i love it i have to give you credit because i think a podcast where you're the only host is so much harder to do than an interview podcast like this one yeah it's true. Uh, I do have a few interviews on that one. Um, I interviewed some of my friends in Italy. I interviewed this one woman actually who, uh, whose doctor, her doctor, she got cancer and her doctor prescribed her the Mediterranean diet. And um, oh, yeah. And so that was part of her, her cancer therapy. Uh, in addition to obviously the, the chemotherapy or the radiation or whatever else she had, uh, he, he, she lives in Italy, so it wasn't that hard, but he, he went over her diet with her and said that, listen, this is part of your, your treatment. And this is what we need to do to change your diet, to help, to help the, to help the, our medical treatments work better. Here's what you can do with your diet to improve your outcome. So what's the title of that podcast? I think it's, uh, uh, I can't, um, let me okay. see. I'll look it up real quick because there it's, it's right here. It's, um, I'd love to put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, please do. Uh, it's a good one. Um, and she's a professional um, foodie, I guess you'd say. She, in Italy, she leads food tours. And um, okay, I got to go back a little bit. But, oh, gosh. You know what? I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to send yeah. it because I'm not. I'm not finding it right now. I'm going to look one more spot here. Yeah, I'm not seeing it, but it's there. And, um, and, I, and I'll send it to you so you can you can put it in the notes. Um, hmm, yeah, okay. I'll have to look for it, but it, I know I have it. Perfect. 
So well, let's end this. Rick, I cannot thank you enough for coming on, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds great. I'd love to come back sometime. Absolutely. All Bye -bye. right. Ciao.